0: our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor at large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Matthew Hayes, a Canadian educator, researcher, and filmmaker who earned his PhD in 2019 and today teaches as a permanent instructor at Northern Lakes College in Alberta. He's also the author of the highly acclaimed book, Search for the Unknown, Canada's UFO Files and the Rise of Conspiracy Theory. I'm grateful to speak with him about the history of UFOs in Canada what they tell us about the relationship between citizens and the Canadian state, and how we ought to think about the renewed interest in UFOs today. Matthew, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book.
2: Oh, thank you. Thanks
1: for inviting me. The book started as your PhD dissertation, and in its acknowledgments, you thank UFOs, whatever they ultimately proved to be, for their, quote, efforts. What got you interested in UFOs? Why did you choose to pursue them as a doctoral topic? And what did your friends and family think about the idea? <laughs>
2: I think my friends and family were were pleased because I think I originally got into this topic because of my dad. I just grew up watching uh, on TV shows about the Bermuda Triangle and, you know, tales about the Egyptian pyramids and Sasquatch and just all that good stuff. So I, I was raised on that stuff and it apparently never went away. And I didn't at all anticipate that I'd be writing about this subject Uh, my research up to that point was completely different but i stumbled across the this archive of files and i just was flabbergasted that it existed i had no idea uh and it was just at the right timing Uh, and it it just kind of snowballed into a phd project and all the way through the phd project i remember telling people like somebody's going to come and tell me at some point that this is not okay (laughs) you can't be studying this kind of thing but it never happened. <laughs> and people seem interested and, and, and pleased with it all, the, all the same. So yeah, it's just a bit serendipitous, but uh, it was a lot of fun.
1: Including, as you say, in the book that you were proactively approached by McGill Queen's University Press to ultimately publish this version of your doctoral dissertation. So it seems like the audience might have been larger than you initially anticipated.
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah. I I really had no idea what what was in store. I I picked it because I thought if I'm going to spend, you know, five years studying anything, I'm going to try to find something that I don't hate at the end of it, which is a common pathway for a lot of academics. So uh, I I picked right. I, I got lucky with this one.
1: You write at the end of the book's introduction that you came to realize that in a way, your research wasn't about UFOs per se but broader post-war changes in Canadian society. What do you mean? How is a book about UFOs not really about UFOs?
2: I think that's the, the kind of standard historian's gambit. Yeah. Is that We say, here's a thing that we think we know about, but really I'm going to do this bait and switch and this is really about something else. So I'm doing the standard historian thing, but I, I came to realize just through reading the archival records you know, letters that people had sent into the government and then letters of the government had sent back that everybody's talking about UFOs. But the thing that everyone's getting really frustrated and passionate about is, is not really UFOs. It it became this other thing. And, and it becomes more explicit as the decades go on. You know, in the early 1950s into the 60s, it is all very much seemingly about UFOs. Like, what are they? We want to know what it is. And we think you might be covering up some information about it. Uh, but then you get into the 70s and the 80s and politics change, culture changes, and all of a sudden people are not really talking about UFOs, but they're using UFOs to talk about other issues like government transparency or government secrecy, um, or just the very experience that a citizen might have of the government or of the states, which is not something that you necessarily experience on a daily basis or in an explicit way, or you're actively communicating with government officials. And so I just realized that there's this this creeping sense that UFOs are still the ostensible topic that everyone is communicating about, but they're really seeming to communicate about much deeper issues that they're frustrated with. And the UFO thing becomes a lightning rod for other issues that are swirling around in the post-war years, or in a lot of cases, just really idiosyncratic issues that people have with the government and their Previous experience of it, or what they think is going on based on other media that they're consuming, so it becomes this, this like hinge point for a bunch of other stuff going on. Uh, But the UFO thing in particular seems to crystallize it in in interesting, kind of wacky ways.
1: Yeah, let me uh, let me ask you to elaborate a bit further. How does UFOs fit in the broader count countercultural dynamic of the post-war era? Uh, Maybe to put differently. How should we understand UFOs as part of a broader political dialogue about evolving notions of the state's monopoly over truth and knowledge?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Well, yeah. Okay. So I think it's central to that, but I think that a lot of people have dismissed it as this fringe concern. You know, not a lot of people are that interested in it, especially in the early days or seemingly. But of course, when you really dive into this, you realize that lots of people are interested in UFOs and these topics that otherwise seem kind of wacky. Hollywood alone, I was reading a statistic the other day that in the 1950s alone, Hollywood produced something like 130 sci-fi films, which is a massive amount of content. And a lot of those were about UFOs and alien abductions. So it obviously was in the air. People were really interested But the government wasn't particularly interested. They thought it was just this, uh, you know, like far out there fringe kind of activity. The very typical image of the conspiracy theorists in their RV in the desert broadcasting to, you know, unknown numbers of people, that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of stereotypes that are still around, very much still powerful, even today, that people just took for granted. But when you get into the files, you realize that, The issues, these underlying issues that people are talking about, are not wacky or fringe at all. It's really basic questions that they're asking about the relationship between the government and the people. What does the government owe us in terms of, you know, disclosure of information or services of various kinds? And then, on the government side as well, what expectations do do they have of citizens, and what it means to be a good citizen and to support the government and to support the state and this is what the issue really became is this massive conflict between these really different ways of understanding society and how people fit into it and their relationship with the government. And so, again, it seems like this wacky left field kind of topic, but I find like most topics like that, I think is what draws me to the, the these fringe kind of things is that it, it's just a veneer of covering up very, very basic questions about politics and, and society. And so I think the UFO thing you know, you you can frame it in a number of different ways, but I'm arguing in the book that actually looking at this stuff is pretty important because I I find that if you look to these kind of wacky topics, they are uh, they're often getting at things that have not really come into the limelight or so won't for a few years, but you get this really early sense of fears and confusions and anxieties that haven't quite articulated themselves and i think people attach them to objects like this because they're unknown you can attach whatever you want to ufos because nobody really knows what they are and outer space is just a vacuum that we you know fill with our fantasies and our fears uh and so i i think it's actually a really productive place to look to try to bring these kinds of things into a more central place to analyze
1: yeah, well said. I would just say in parentheses, it seems to me one of the lessons we've learned in recent years during this period of political disruption and the rise of populism and all the rest is that if governments are dismissive of some of these nascent ideas or, or subjects or whatever, they're not going to go away. The risk, of course, is that they start to fester and then they ultimately combust. So a ton of insight there. I just say that. uh this narrative in the book about the relationship between the surface level story of u f o s and these deeper questions about knowledge and truth and the relationship between citizens of state is really powerful and one of the reasons why listeners ought to ought to read the book another reason though is it's full of great stories um each of the chapters tells a story of different individuals or issues or experiences or events that are reflective of some of these broader trends, and I want to ask you about some of those if, if that's okay first of all, who is Wilbur Smith, and what's his role in your story?
2: Yeah Wilbur Smith is a pretty fascinating guy and he takes up uh, an entire chapter chapter one is all about Wilbur Smith and he makes he's mentioned kind of all the way through the rest of the book as well and in in ufology circles and in, in the community, I think he's a fairly well known name and it's because I think mostly that he was someone who was very interested in ufos like many others at the time but had a government position so he was a qualified radio engineer uh, master's degree in in electrical engineering and worked for the department of transport which still exists still departments in the canadian canadian government uh, and had a senior position by the end and one of the really amazing things is that his his work into ufos didn't stop his career advancements, which is typical for a lot of other scientists, that he continued to be promoted because everybody knew that he was very good at his job. And so that lent a certain credibility to what he was doing uh, in a way that many other people didn't. And it's not necessarily clear that he really had government sanction for what he was doing, but it could certainly be played up to that effect. And so in essence, he ran a project. He called it the Project Magnets. It ran from 1950 to 1954 ostensibly under the auspices of the department of transport they did give him permission to do this although they're always fairly clear that it was supposed to be kind of a part-time thing using equipment that isn't being used elsewhere you know this is fine if you do this but don't trouble us with it too much Uh, and so he spent a few years just trying to make sense of ufos he came to it interested because he was an engineer and thought while this seems like an engineering issue or a problem, a really interesting um, question to tackle is, how do UFOs propel themselves? If these things are real craft, what are they? How do they work? He didn't really come to any conclusions. Uh, he, you know, has just hit the brick wall that every researcher does that you just can't really know in the end because we don't have a flying saucer to examine. We don't have alien bodies to examine, depending who you believe, uh, this kind of thing. So he did a, a bunch of different little studies. He he put a balloon up into the air t- in Ottawa to try to test the observational capacities of citizens. Uh, he tried to do a bunch of complicated mathematical weighting factors to make sense of the sightings that he was looking at. And it all came to, mostly to naught. You know, he, he made a lot of interesting colleagues and friends. Uh, he was running a UFO study group out of his basement in the suburbs of Ottawa for a while. Uh, but eventually the project gets shut down because of publicity. <laughs> the word gets out that this Canadian engineer working for the government has official government sanction to study UFOs and the journalists just keep come calling constantly to the point where it starts to really frustrate his superiors at the Department of Transport. Other people get wind of it that are higher up in the government and so they kibosh the whole thing in the end. they. They appeal to their mandate that what he's doing has gone so far outside of what he originally proposed, which seemed to be a legitimate study of, you know, magnetic phenomena, geomagnetic geomagn- propulsion. Uh, and by the end, Smith is, is pretty clear that he thinks that these are extraterrestrials living in the ionosphere of Earth's atmosphere and communicating with them through radio, more signals, uh, all kinds of stuff that the government just is not okay with. And so they, they put an end to this uh, and so it's not a, a super happy ending for his work he feels very frustrated in the end but i think that smith's story is is really interesting and, and important because it's it lays the foundation for what's to come you have this conflict between a couple of different ways of approaching this a couple of different kind of senses or styles of knowledge about this uh, of where knowledge about this might come from or how you would obtain knowledge about ufo's uh, and that conflict spreads out. It's It doesn't remain within the confines of this particular department and the government. You really start to see it reflected that the government takes on this very scientific, positivistic attitude that things only exist if you can measure them using our standard tools. And that conflicts in a very big way with a lot of citizens who think that that's not the only way to find the truth about these matters. And Maybe is the worst way to find truth about this, uh, and so nobody wants to back down. Of course, everybody mistrusts everybody else. They think that they have uh, ulterior motives, or that they're just you know uneducated or delusional. Government's favorite phrase is that UFOs are, are the products of delusional minds, or that more benignly they're just normal atmospheric phenomena that people are misidentifying. So. Smith's story really sets the stage for what's to come in decades later. This this conflict that really doesn't get any better; it just seems to get worse over time.
1: We will come to the subject of the government's institutional response to these developments, but before we get there, I want to ask about a particular episode. What happened at Stag Harbour, Nova Scotia, in October nineteen sixty seven, and what's its role in your story as Canada's quote Roswell?
2: Mm. Yeah, the Shake Harbor one is is interesting. It, it, I think, I argue in the book, mostly because it left behind physical evidence. And so I was saying that the, the government quickly takes on this attitude that we're really only going to take this thing seriously, this UFO phenomenon, if there's stuff to measure. You point us towards an actual craft or a piece of a craft, something physical that I can pick up or measure with a Geiger counter or something like that, and then we'll take this seriously up until then, it's just sightings. And so in one of the chapters in the book, I present three cases that be, that leave behind physical evidence, which forced the government, based on their own reasoning, to take seriously. And they did. They took them much more seriously than any other sighting that they received. And so the Shea Carbon one is really interesting because especially it's not just citizens that witness this, it's a bunch of RCMP officers as well. And so you immediately have to the government, at least a higher level of credibility about this. And so this takes place in October, I believe it is, 1967. Uh, it's I would say it's part of now Canada's founding myth about UFOs, if we have one, if you could say we have one. Uh, and it's been called Canada's Roswell because it was a crash. It was a, a witness crash of a flying, a seemingly a flying saucer, that hit the water in Shag Harbor, which is the f- Far reaches of Nova Scotia on the, the southwestern tip, and in, in I think it's Yarmouth County. So there's not a lot of people there. There's not a lot going on. Uh, but all of a sudden, this, this flying saucer crashes into the bay after people have been seeing stuff, lights in the sky for a couple of days, and, and they track this thing. And it sits there. It sits in the harbor. So it's not like it just crashes and then disappears. It crashes and it sits on top of the water while people are on the shore watching it. Uh, including, as I said, a couple of RCMP officers. So there are multiple eyewitnesses to this. There's very good descriptions of what happens all the way through. And then somebody tries to pilot a boat out to see if there are survivors. Because the first thought is, this is not necessarily a flying saucer. This is some kind of experimental military craft, and they need help. Maybe there's survivors that that need help coming back to shore. But as soon as the boat gets close enough, this flying saucer sinks underwater. And it's never seen again. They, the Canadian military sends out a couple of divers to actually try to find it, and they come back with nothing. And there's there's theories that maybe they did find something and they've covered it up, the, the, the typical kind of thing, but the records show that that nothing was found. And so it remains unexplained, just like the other two. There's two other cases like this. They all remain unexplained because, again, they hit this brick wall of of evidence that you have more eyewitness testimony, but in the end, there actually really isn't anything physical to study. They didn't recover anything, whereas in other cases they did you know there's soil sample readings that have higher than normal radioactivity there's pieces of craft that maybe fell from the sky um, so there's sometimes a, a you know miscellany of evidence uh, but in this case it's it's still mostly eyewitness testimony. But the significant thing is that the government did take it seriously. They thought, We're not necessarily saying that this is a UFO or a flying saucer or anything. We just don't know. And that's a reasonable response to take, of course, unless there's more information forthcoming, which there never is, unfortunately. Um, so it stands, I think I think I describe it as really the, the culmination, the climax of the story, that this is now 1967, Canada's centennial year. And things are building, building, building up to this point. Pe- citizens are getting angry and angrier that the government's not taking this seriously. And then this happens amongst these other two incidences with physical evidence left behind. And it seems like the culmination of the government's investigation, that they do send people out, they do try to take it seriously. They take the readings, they write the reports. But in the end, there's just nothing else that they can do. And so the de- investigation seems to de- to decline quite precipitously after that. that they think, okay, we've done the job. You know, we we studied the best that these things had to offer, and in the end, we've come to the same conclusion. So it's this disappointing end, I think, for them.
1: Your answer, Matthew, reflects a broader idea or trend in the book, and, and that is the tendency on the part of government departments and government officials to be mostly dismissive of these claims about UFOs. A good example is Project Second Story, which was launched by the Defense Review Board, a military science agency in 1952, to, in your words, quote, assert its expertise by debunking UFOs. You go on to write, quote, for Project Second Story, UFOs were a waste of time because it was evident that they did not exist, unquote. Why was the government seemingly so invested in a particular conclusion? Is it risk aversion? Bureaucratic groupthink or something else? What explains the, the government's institutional aversion to the idea of UFOs?
2: I think it's a combination of those things. But if I if I had to distill it down, it's probably just that the government was really afraid of being embarrassed. I think that's what comes through really clearly in the documents: is that there's so much reticence from government officials, and it, and it's all over the government. It's it's there's so many departments that encountered UFOs in some way, usually because someone sent a letter in reporting a sighting, or asking for information. Uh, and so there's, like f- there's four main ones that I talk about in the book, but there's a number of them that have some kind of encounter. And none of these departments are communicating with each other as well. That's one of the main issues. But the one thing that they all seem to have in common is that they're very, very worried about embarrassing the government. We, we cannot put ourselves out there and try to take UFOs seriously in the way that these citizens want us to in case it comes back and bites us. That's very much the sense that I get, and, and there's other things animating that as well. there's very much a sense uh, this technocratic scientific you know or scientific sense that we are hardline scientists again we we only believe in the things that we can measure. Canada's a very practical country you know we need to use science to develop good technology to help us live better. That's really the main goal here and I think that's why wilbert Smith's project was granted permission at first is because he was he was couching all of this study in terms of in those terms that maybe we can discover something new here maybe some new piece of technology and so that's fine as far as that goes (laughs) but as soon as it goes beyond that all of a sudden you're getting into the range where you know the canadian government is, is cautious it's it's real it's it's main mode of operation is to be hesitant, is to not put itself out there, not make big splashy pronouncements or decisions the way that the Americans might, for instance, uh, very much trying to set themselves apart from that style of doing things. T- to maintain order, to maintain good, you know, peaceful, orderly governments. That's always kind of been being the goal. Um and so I think there's a few of these things that that are animating this response. And it's just it just seems in the end to come down to there's just not enough evidence to really say one way or the other. Canadian politicians or Canadian bureaucrats certainly are cautious. They don't want to put themselves out there for fear of being wrong, of embarrassing the government. Uh, and a lot of this stuff is just too outlandish for them at that time, especially in, in the 1950s. You know, they've, they're coming out of the Second World War, just trying to reconstruct everything, move on with their lives and, and just have faith in the power of science and technology. Uh, And we're getting pretty frustrated that citizens seemingly didn't have that faith, or at least not to the degree they wanted.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let me follow
1: up on your answer. You write elsewhere in the book that the Canadian military wanted "quote answers, not mysteries." Unquote. It, it's a great line. I've I thought about it a lot. What do you think about the hypothesis that the people who self-select into government bureaucracies, preference order and process, such that something like UFOs would offend their sensibilities? If that resonates with you, what does it say about the government's institutional ability? To investigate UFOs, even today,
2: I, I think that's on the mark. It, it sounds accurate to me. I mean, yeah, I think that was a quote from Department of National Defense or, or something like that. Can't remember exactly where, and, and it it does capture a lot of what's going on. Is that it? Ex- it certainly explains why the government is just so resi- reticent, reticent. Sorry to to explore this stuff. You know, they it is just a total mystery, and I think one thing that citizens in canada communicating about this what the government are trying to didn't quite grasp is just the influence that american policy and bureaucracy had on the canadians the canadian bureaucrats were just waiting to see what happened. again they're very res- uh, very hesitant to put themselves out there and so they're just waiting to see you know let the americans make the big pronouncements about flying saucers that's not really what we do here we're much more practically minded. Um, this is just too far outside of the scope of what we are called to do as bureaucrats. Like we, we are not called to try to make sense of extraterrestrials. Uh, so it's a very much a, a very down-to-earth kind of approach. And so I think that's that's probably true to some extent that people self-select into the bureaucracy because it's it's boring, <laughs> it's kind of safe, it's run-of-the-mill, you know, you collect your paycheck, you do your work. There's nothing that exciting going on in most places in the government, I imagine. Um, I've never worked for the government, full disclosure, so I don't know, but this is certainly what I've been told by uh, even people after since the book's been published. I've, I've heard a few stories like this. This is kind of the approach that's taken, and, and I, I certainly see that in the documents. So I think there's definitely a lot of that going on. And, and it seemed especially that one thing or a phenomenon that I noticed is that the harder each side pushed on the other, the further away that they get. Right. And, and that's probably not that surprising that, you know, if you keep pushing and pushing, pushing, you're going to just, each position is going to harden. And so that's what I describe is that there's just, this, this becomes so intractable. There's really no progress made on this issue even in decades, of, of citizens trying to get some kind of disclosure because they're just pushing each other further and further away. It really is offending the sensibilities of bureaucrats who just want to clock in and do the the paperwork and then clock out. And that might be a bit cynical, but that's certainly what I've read in, or certainly read between the lines in a lot of the documents that it was offending sensibilities.
1: That's a good segue to my next question. You reviewed something like 15,000 archival documents from the Departments of National Defense, Transportation and Communications, as well as the RCMP, the National Research Council, and others. Matthew, did you find any evidence over the period that you studied, which is roughly 1950 to 1990, that the political arm of the government was engaged much on the issue? Did any prime minister or ministers express interest in the file, or was this mostly carried out at a bureaucratic level? It's
2: mostly a bureaucratic level, and very unwillingly, even at that, I would say. So that's a great question, because I, I did search for that. There, there are a couple of rare examples of members of parliament reaching out, for instance, to Wilbur Smith. So in the early 50s or late 50s, uh, there's, there's one or two MPs who reach out who just say, you know, I've, I've heard that you're doing this kind of work, and I think it's great, and I hope that there's going to be more of this. Let me know if I can help in any way. But of course, especially in the early days before Wilbur Smith starts kind of leaking all the stuff that he's doing, the press, there's not much information circulating about it. And so I think that one of the problems is that a lot of politicians simply didn't realize that the Canadian government was dealing with this in any way at all, because they really tried to keep it secret. There's very explicit directives, for instance, from the Department of National Defense to say no to the CBC, do not take press uh, requests about this kind of thing. And then there's other examples where you see why, because they were taking press requests and then their their government officials are inevitably very frustrated with what is written about it. They think it's very inaccurate. It characterizes the Canadian government in a way that they're not comfortable with. Um, And so there's not a lot of action on on the political front. I actually did email every still living ex-minister of national defense to ask that question, just did UFOs ever come across your desk? And of course, they may not have been telling me the truth if they did, but everyone without exception said no, absolutely not. It never came across my desk. It was just not an issue that I ever had to deal with. And I do believe that to a certain extent. So, you know, Maybe in the case that they were, they heard about a sighting or two, but it doesn't seem at all like it made it up the chain of command. The one exception, of course, is Paul Hellyer, That everybody knows about. And I did interview him on the phone before he died. And it was a very interesting interview. But the one thing he made very clear was that UFOs were never on the agenda when he was actually in office. He didn't come to the subject at all until the 1990s, is what he told me. After there was one particular book um, written by a a retired American colonel, I think. Um, And that's what kick started his interest. Um, And so I think people like make a lot uh, to do about Paul Helio's views, but when he was Minister of National Defense as a politician, it was just not on the radar, as it seemed to be the case for most. So if that particular politician had an interest anyway in UFOs, maybe they would send a letter or two. But again, I think it was considered political suicide at the time, just like the bureaucrats would have thought. So.
1: I would just say in parentheses, Matthew, I worked for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper for about seven years. Um, in you know relatively senior roles of course i didn't see everything that went to him Um, i didn't have top secret clearance for instance and so it's possible that he received briefings or information about ufos that i wasn't aware of but i can say that in my time you know at the center of the canadian government this was just not an issue um that ever rose to the level of the political arm of the government and so much so that as i was reading the book i regretted that i didn't ask for a briefing on the file let's move on to the key narrative of the book that is the tension between expertise and hobbyism you write that the gap between these worlds has a tendency to become more entrenched over time it strikes me though that in recent years experts haven't served themselves especially well in fact we've had some pretty spectacular failures how has your research come to shape how you think about the public's trust and the role for experts, including government officials, to ultimately earn it?
2: Well, I think one of the main issues that the Canadian government encountered was that they took it for granted that everyone trusted them and trusted their expertise, and that turned out to be false, pretty false. <laughs> and I think that in the early 1950s, certainly it it wasn't wise, I'm going to make the claim that it wasn't widespread enough. That it was really on the, on the radar for bureaucrats that, oh, not everybody believes us. Not everybody trusts that we are benevolent, that what we're doing is for the public's good. And so I think that's the value of studying these kind of fringe topics is that you typically, that's typically where you first find these rumblings that all is not well, that, you know, the people, if we can take UFO enthusiasts during this time as representative in any way of the public, that they're not happy, that they don't fully trust the government and and in some cases go much more extreme that the government is actively, you know, keeping information in a kind of sinister, malicious way. That's not a a super common view, but it seems to have become much more common. And so I'm viewing the UFO thing as a harbinger of what was to come and now is seemingly more realized in, in politics today. But I think that's the main thing is that there is this gap between state expertise or or government, especially scientific technical expertise, which they take for granted as, you know, the forefront that they are making progress and they're making the lives of everyone in the country better, but they have not actually convinced the public necessarily of this, that it is an assumption that is made at a lot of points. Uh, And so I I think that's one of the main values of, of the work is to show where and when these assumptions broke down or when people just simply flat out refused to accept them. And, and that's very confusing for the government. You can see that in the correspondence that they just don't know how to make sense of this. And it seems on the surface that they don't know how to make sense of people who are asking about UFOs. But I think the thing that really vexed the government was that they, I'm not sure they even really realized this. This is me reading into it, that the thing that they couldn't get over was that people just didn't trust them that they just didn't have this trust that government officials assumed that they did. And they just could not make sense of that. They they put it onto all kinds of other things, but they avoided what was actually staring them in the face. That when you say that we have this under control and that UFOs are nothing but bunk, that they're just normal atmospheric phenomena, people don't believe it. They they have a range of reasons for not believing it based on experience with the government or otherwise and I'm not sure that that attitude has really changed that much in the government. I, in fact, I, I would argue that it hasn't because I think I saw basically the same thing play out, uh, when COVID started <clears throat> is that the government was making pronouncements in almost the exact same way as they did in the fifties. And I remember watching the news and I remember watching, you know, the back and forth on between government pronouncements in, in mainstream news or, you know, uh, more public reactions on social media and the interplay—all of this—it's like I've seen all of this before. This is literally the same thing playing out because apparently nobody's learned a lesson here, <laughs> and it's not just the government; it's all around. It's the government just cannot fathom that people don't trust it, that people don't trust that it might not be benevolent, that they that they have all the expertise. But then on the other side, of course. You know the government can't believe that citizens are not being rational actors this is this this is the the basis of the bureaucracy is that people will be rational citizens who will see through the fog of superstition. That's not how things work you know it's and, and that's not necessarily how it ever works it, it it's a particular model of government citizen interaction that I think is is mostly false or at least that's what I'm getting from these documents is that people never really did. Be they were never like that, they the, the government expected that, uh, but they certainly didn't do much to try to foster it. Or, you know, when it became clear that they weren't like that, all they did was dismiss it as, as crazy people. And what's the best way to drive someone into their beliefs further and further is just to call them a crazy conspiracy theorist. And so, I saw the exact same thing happening is with COVID, and it's not about necessarily conspiracy theory, although it can manifest like that. It's just that we live in a very fast, you know, paced, quick-changing, confusing world. There's just a lot of stuff that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Things are changing too quickly for a lot of people. And the government just can't quite seem to wrap their head around that, that people couldn't necessarily keep up with those changes or that they'll come up with their own explanations of what's going on that conflict with the official narrative.
1: Yeah, good, good. That's a great answer, Matthew. Uh, Let me put a penultimate question to you. We're living in a period of renewed interest in UFOs. How do you interpret this development? Is it a sociological phenomenon? Does it reflect the broader rise of conspiratorial thinking? Or is it a sign that UFOs may indeed be real?
2: Well, okay, I'll I'll never discount the possibility that they could be real. (laughs) I think that's part of what got me into it. It's just, you just don't know. You, You can't say for sure. And I think anyone who says that they know for sure is talking out of their hats. You just can't know for sure. So there's always that possibility. I think it's unlikely that UFOs are real in the way. I think the thing that that makes that clear to me is that this is almost exclusively an American phenomenon. Of course, I've written about the Canadian files. You can read about the UK files, the French files, et cetera. But this is at the end of the day, like 99% an American phenomenon, which should tell us a lot about what's going on. Uh, but I've been asked this a number of times. Of course, the I, was, I suspected the least that the UFO thing would, would pop up again. But what I've come to realize, I think, is that if you track it over time, there's surges like this all the way through. It's not a constant you know, state of interest in UFOs. There's, there's peaks and valleys. And this is another one of those peaks. And it seems like these peaks happen when the world seems to be the most confusing, when we have really intractable, big problems that we have to deal with that we just can't seem to make sense of or we don't seem to have the will to change and it seems like in those moments people start looking to alternative explanations whether it be conspiracy theory or otherwise but i think especially with the ufo thing people have always looked to the skies for answers like it's the exact same thing that was happening in in the late forties, the fifties, when the cold war starts and you're not sure if it's Soviet planes coming over, or if it's some advanced technology, it's, you can, you can use outer space. You can use flying saucers to, to explain away much, most anything, because again, they are these, these empty containers that you can fill with whatever you need to. And so I think that if you, if you track that change over time, you'll see that Big periods of conflict, um, periods where we have really big problems that nobody can seem to solve that are starting to affect us uh, in existential ways or really concrete ways. Um, People turn to what we would otherwise see as kind of outlandish explanations for things. But they are big umbrellas that, you know, keep you dry from a lot of different things. So they're very
1: attractive that way. Final question. You write in your conclusion that we aren't likely to know the quote truth about UFOs, including whether they're extraterrestrial in origin. Why not? What do you think ultimately stands in the way? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, again, I, I, as an historian, I would say that the odds are not in our favor that these things are real just because of the way that the history of UFOs goes. You know, they didn't, they, they in a sense didn't exist prior to Roswell, let's say. Uh, There's kind of studies of them before. So they seem to be a pretty squarely historical phenomenon reflecting very specific historical, you know, technoscientific fears. So so that's, that's one part of it. But I think that we'll never know because I think that in the end, UFOs, again, it's this thing that it wasn't really about UFOs. UFOs were just this foil to explore other much deeper anxieties that have been around for a long time that's and it's those anxieties that probably are not going to go away because there's such big questions and they manifest in many different ways in society, but the UFO thing crystallizes them in a certain way, because again, I think UFOs, they, they expose the limits of our knowledge and they expose the limits, especially of, of expert knowledge. Um, and, and that's something pretty intractable to try to get over that seeds, a lot of doubts that's, that's filters out in in a lot of, um, unseen ways that only become seen far too late. <laughs> and I think that's this, the case of the UFOs is that we're now, I think, seeing much more clearly uh, in, in contemporary politics, you know, the, the role that UFOs play, but it, it's kind of like too little, too late as well. It, it's If you look back at the history, they're asking literally the same questions and saying literally the same things in the 1950s or the late 40s. So nothing has changed. And so that to me shows that again this isn't really about UFOs these are about much broader political questions that we've been debating for centuries at this point it's going to take a long time to to work them out.
1: Well I've been grateful to talk to you about some of those questions. Uh Andrew must read book Search for the Unknown Canada's UFO files and the rise of conspiracy theory. Matthew Hayes Canadian educator, researcher and filmmaker Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues.
2: It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues brought to you by the Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your audio online and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.